The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, power and prejudices. This year, 2024, is an election year in America, a presidential election year. And so we will be doing two podcasts a week, rather than our usual one, because we want to and because we know you can't get enough Americano in your life. I am delighted to be joined uh, today by Mike Baker, who is here in London. Uh, welcome to London, Mike, Thank you very first much. of all. <laughs> you are uh, a former CIA uh, officer. Uh, you are a security expert. You are the CEO of the Portman Square Group, in, intelligence group, is it? It's an intelligence and security firm, yes. Security yeah, Risk mitigation, group. yeah. Uh, and you are host of the very informative and good podcast, which is called The President's Daily Brief. And uh, I won't ask what nefarious business you're you're doing here in London. I think oh, we some start serious shenanigans. Dark, I'll tell you that. Some dark, dark <laughs> stuff. I'll start by talking about uh, Iran, the Biden administration in Iran, um, because that's obviously the story uh, of the moment. The White House has said it will respond and has sort of given a, a fairly clear idea of how it will respond, and um, perhaps giving the element of surprise away to the drone attack last weekend, uh, which everybody has pinned on Iran. Drone attacks seem to always be pinned on Iran, um, and probably rightly so. You can tell me whether it's rightly so or not. There is a danger of escalation here. Do you think the Biden White House has a clear idea of what it's doing? And do you think they are being too timid or too obvious? Well, starting with that last question, I think yes, on both counts. <laughs> yeah. I think they're being timid and obvious. I've, I, I've never seen in a long number of years, I've never seen so much talk about a, a retaliatory action as opposed to actually just doing it. Right. So it's been several, several days since President Biden first said as he was uh, heading off somewhere and uh, reporters asked him and he said, I have now decided what we're going to do. And, and you know, we're going on a week now. And we've had several statements from the White House and from the National Security Advisor and others saying, well, we've decided on a course of action. And, you know, so expect this and this is what we're going to be doing. And and they just keep going on about what they're going to do rather than just doing it. And as you pointed out, uh, sometimes it is good to have an element of surprise. They're clearly setting the table right for uh, minimal response, in a sense. Right. They the, the last thing they appear to want to do is actually target those responsible for this, which is the Iranian regime. So all the chaos, not all the chaos, but a significant portion of the chaos that we're seeing in the Middle East right now is the responsibility of the Iranian regime, right? It's okay, it's fine, it's the Houthis, it's Khatib, uh, Hezbollah, it's, it's Hamas, it's whatever. But they exist because Iran has built them and has supported them and has trained them and has resourced them. If, if the Iranian regime doesn't have to pay a direct consequence for this, whether that is increased sanctions that actually mean something because it, it starts to dry up their oil revenues, or whether it's um, you know, targeting a, a refinery 
or something, if they don't face a direct consequence, that's exactly what they want. They've built a system where they can engage in all this instability and aggressiveness and have their proxies suffer the consequences, mm. right? And so that they can have this very thin cover of plausible deniability. Um, so I think the, the White House is playing into that. Um, they are giving them what they want. And why? Uh, it's because for three years they've, you know, since they, they came into office, the Biden administration, uh, and look, this is not, I don't really care about politics. I care about policy and about the effectiveness of a policy from any administration. Mm. Uh, but their policy direction from the beginning was essentially appeasement, getting back into uh, an agreement of, of any sort with mm. the Iranians. And so they eased up on sanctions. They staffed all their positions in the U.S. that are, are Iran-facing, the Iranian envoy and, and positions at the Pentagon that deal with Iran and others with essentially with people who had the same belief that maximum pressure was the wrong way to go, that we should bring them into the community of nations by, you know, extending the, 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 the hand of friendship. And that doesn't work with this regime. And mm. so now I think the, the Biden uh, administration in an election year, realizing that this is becoming a real political issue for them, uh, is finally coming around that they need to take some action. But I wouldn't expect a particularly strong response coming up from this result of this attack in Jordan that, yes. that killed U.S. service members. And let's get on to the, to the Biden strategy, uh, uh, get a bit more into that in, in a second. But first of all, just tell us about these bases that America has in Jordan. Uh, I think there's still some in Iraq and so on. What is their function? No. Yeah, the, the primary mission is to... Uh, continue to degrade and suppress ISIS mm. and ISIS's efforts, which they are engaged in, to reconstitute themselves. So most of the personnel that are in Iraq, as an example, and there's about 2,500 uh, service members in Iraq, that's primarily their job, is to work with the Iraqi military and to uh, gather intelligence, carry out operations when necessary, with the, the primary objective being don't allow ISIS to reconstitute, which is, again, the, what their effort's all about. That's what they're trying to do. Same with the base that was in Jordan, northeastern Jordan, that yeah. got hit, where we, yeah. we lost some service members and 40 or so others were injured some seriously. So it's, uh, it's a question. The, the Iraqi situation is, is in flux. It's changing. Uh, I would expect that during the course of this year, We'll probably end up withdrawing, or maybe the following year, withdrawing all those remaining troops, um, in part mm. because the Iraqi government is getting a great deal of pressure from the Iranians. And the Iranians have a number of militias. It's a very unusual situation if you think about it. The al Sudani government in Iraq isn't strong enough to operate uh, without um, appeasing the Iranian militias. So they uh, have allowed a number of them to kind of form uh, a part of the security apparatus in country. That group has become actually an important block within the government. And so you have this pressure coming from the Iranians. And, you know, the, it, again, the Iranian primary focus is remove the U.S. from the Middle East, become the regional leader, uh, and, and, of course, you know, the destruction of Israel. So they've got some objectives that they continue to work on. Well, the, uh, I mean, this makes me think about the Iraq War, which, of course, uh, did uh, empower Iran in many ways. Do you think American policy in the Middle East 
perhaps the Trump years you might see as an exemption, but but has essentially been disastrous as far as containing Iran uh, has been. It's been disastrous uh, pretty much since the invasion of Iraq. Um, I would say it hasn't it hasn't been particularly effective. Disastrous may be a you know a, a harsh word or a way to put it, but I would say it hasn't been particularly effective. Either if the goal with some administrations was to bring them into the community of nations, that hasn't worked, or if the goal was to uh, minimize their ability to create havoc uh, and pursue their own goals in the Middle East. So on both counts, regardless of where you, the administration may have been in terms of their objectives, I don't think you know they've been effective in, in any way. So look, they're, they're getting closer and closer in terms of the breakout window for uh, nuclear capability. Um, it would be far better to deal with them now. Uh, and again, this doesn't mean war. People have these, these sort of, they think it's a binary choice, right? You're either engaged in war, you know, or, you know, you're not. You're not, you're not pushing any buttons. There are things you can be doing um, to project strength um, and to uh, dissuade them from engaging in this sort of behavior. If they told the Houthis to stop firing missiles at commercial vessels and, and, and military ships out in the, the Red Sea, they would stop. Yeah. If they uh, told Qatay Hezbollah not to engage in these aggressive activities, um, don't use the missiles that we're providing you to attack or the drones that we're providing you to attack uh, U.S. or allied facilities, they would stop. But you they don't, don't, you do don't buy this argument then that uh, you hear it said sometimes that Iran has lost or is losing control of its proxies. No, no, I don't believe that because their funding and their resourcing in terms of hardware, weaponry, their training on that is far too important. There's their, their provision of intelligence. You know, it's not the Houthis aren't sitting there, you know, targeting and tracking vessels. Mm. Right. That's that's with the assistance of the IRGC. Mm. And so, no, I don't. There, there, I see no reason whatsoever to believe this concept. Uh, uh, that's how they've set it up, as again, to have this plausible deniability. But they're doing the bidding of, yes. of the Iranian regime and the IRGC. The IRGC. It's not as if they're having daily calls saying, OK, what missile are you going to fire today? But there's objectives that have been laid out. And, and again, if they wanted it stopped, they would stop it. So I could see a certain logic in the Obama administration's approach to Iran. Uh, I'm not sure that it it worked. I think you've 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 said um, before that you you think that the the nuclear deal was a disaster. I can also see uh, a certain very coherent logic in the Trump administration's approach to Iran: maximum pressure, um, tearing up the deal, and so on. Do you think the problem with the Biden administration has been a muddle? They've revived uh, a lot of the Obama era thinking about Iran and some of the concessions, but they don't have any intention of reviving the nuclear deal. It seems. But at the same time, they've continued the Abraham Accords policies. They've, they've, they've tried to continue the Trump era approach of isolating Iran. Is it the muddle of the Biden administration that the problem, or is it just trying to accommodate Iran is always going to lead to the disaster? That's a really interesting. It's it's a really interesting way to phrase it. I think yes, you're right. I think thinking about it, the messaging does always seem to be a problem. Right. I mean, you, you could argue the same thing about the Trump administration. Yeah. That was terrible messaging. Right. And then you were sometimes left wondering. But you could argue that sometimes that, you know, if if foreign leaders who are hostile to either the U.S. or, or allies or EU uh, objectives 
aren't quite sure where that country is, is, is on the decision-making map or what their message is, maybe that's not a bad thing to some degree. But I think, I think with the current U.S. administration, part of the problem is a messaging issue, and internally it's because they're somewhat confused mm. over what way to go. And they're also they're very political. Not that every administration doesn't have that element, but, but look, we're in an election year. Right? This is a very dangerous time. We've got a lot of flashpoints around the world, and you've got the U.S., with this bizarrely dysfunctional, hyperpartisan election coming up, right? And so decisions will be made based on poll numbers rather than, rather than pragmatic, hard-nosed decisions about foreign policy and national security. It's yes. going to be based on what do I think is going to get me across the finish line in November, right, yes. for the election. So I, I do think there's a, a bit of a mixed messaging issue going on. I think also... The regime has shown over the years, and anytime you you know try to uh, again give them the hand of friendship or however you want to put it, bring them into the community of nations, they're they're it's not in their interest. They don't want to do it, right? Their objective has been pretty clear. When they say they 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 want to be in charge in the Middle East, when they say they want to uh, wipe Israel off the map, as an example, that's what they mean. They're not kidding, right? And so yeah. we have to take them at their word. Look, the Iranian people, the culture, the history, it's fascinating. It's fantastic. It's terrific. And I'm, so I'm talking about the regime. You mm. know, people always get that muddled, too. You know, you talk about, you talk about the Chinese regime and the CCP and, and, and Xi Jinping, and people are like, say, oh, well, that's true. You're not talking about the Chinese people. You're yeah. not talking about the history, the culture, the, you know, everything that they bring to the table. You're talking about a particular regime. Um, so I think with, with, with Iran... I think there is an awareness, a growing awareness to some degree, again, because of this concern over political pressure. Look, the, the Biden administration, when they staffed their positions for Iran, their Iranian en- envoy, Robert Malley, who's had his security clearances pulled and has disappeared quietly from the D.C. scene, the Biden administration hasn't bothered to explain what that was all about. Mm. Right? He was clearly engaged in inappropriate conversations and probably passage of information to Iranian officials that he was not supposed to be because his goal was to to prove that you could appease them and that they would, you know, work with us. Yes. Ridiculous concept. And unfortunately, he was the front point person. And there's an investigation going on into him. And, and you know, there's others that were of that same ilk that are still in the Pentagon and elsewhere that haven't been moved out. But I do think there's an awareness within the Biden administration that they need to change track here because the reality is 166 or so missile and drone attacks on U.S. and allied facilities and personnel, and all from Iranian proxies. Yes. Um, I'm right in thinking John Kerry was very keen to accommodate the Iranians, and he still has a, yes. a quite a lot of say within the administration. He does. He's just stepped down as the energy czar yeah. um, and is taking a position within the Biden campaign team. Right. But he... When it came to the, the, the nuclear deal that was uh, constructed... Uh, with Iran, he had said, well, you know, the important thing is, you know, trust, and, and he used the old trust, but verify, and it's based on trust, it's ba- but it's based on verification too. Yeah. And the problem was the Iranians uh, uh, got what they wanted, which was a deal that didn't allow for inspection of military sites, key military sites involved in their ballistic missile and nuclear development programs. So there was no complete verification. We mm. didn't know. And so if you start from that basis of, well, we, we, 
you know, I don't know why you would trust them. You know, I would put verify first and then, you know, let that build trust. Yeah. But there, that verification was not anywhere near 100%. Yes. And if we look at the Trump administration and uh, a, probably a more strategic, more military based approach rather than a political approach in many ways, it did seem to work. It did seem to contain Iran, although it was quite hair raising at the time. I remember after Soleimani was killed and that was a surprise attack. It wasn't telegraphed like um th- there were a few days where you know it really felt like the Iranians might do something very drastic in reply but they but they did not they crucially. did not yeah. no and i think that's look nobody wants conflict nobody wants war no that's i mean when people talk about that say oh they're just they're pushing for war well no you're pushing to say that appeasement doesn't work project strength make it clear if they if they go off the the the, the map and do something uh, as an example, you know, 166 <laughs> missile and drone attacks, killing U.S. service people, disrupting a, a very significant portion of, of commercial shipping and trafficking that, that, that now is causing problems globally, mm. um, then, yes, you need to respond quickly. Uh, I am still, going back to our original point, I'm, I'm very confused over the current administration's, you know, day after day saying, we've decided. Yeah. Boy, it's going to, I mean, at some point I'm expecting them to actually name the targets that they're going to go after yeah. Yeah. ahead of time, right? They just, they can't, they, something's going on, right? That, that there, either there's some internal dispute still or they haven't quite settled. I guarantee you the Pentagon months ago provided a variety of very robust target packages saying mm. in the following scenarios, these was what we, we considered this an appropriate response program. Here's this, here's these targets. So it's not as if they don't have options sitting in front of them and go, this one, let's do it, let's go. Yes. Because it's, but So I don't know, maybe they're trying to talk them to death. You say people are too binary about, you know, it's either war with Iran or it's not war with Iran. Mm. I take that point. But there are some people in Washington who, certainly if they don't want actual war with Iran, think regime change is absolutely necessary and should mm. be carried out by military means if possible. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's you don't want to get into the regime change business. I don't think that's yeah. that's a good idea. I think what you know sometimes you get some pretty blustery statements from Washington politicians. Yeah, um, it's easy for them to say. It gives them a good soundbite, uh, plays to their base, you know, voter crowd. But I think the the most pragmatic way to deal with Iran is to make them realize it's not in their best interests to um, to engage in aggressive behavior to destabilize the region that it's in their best interests to uh, focus on maintaining power right mm. um taking out Qasem Soleimani the IRGC commander right that sent a very clear message to them and uh back in the day years ago when they uh mined a U.S. ship um the U.S. administration response at the time uh, under uh, uh President Reagan uh, ended up, you know, destroying uh, almost half their navy, right? Mm. Uh, taking out refineries, and and they backed off, and they just focused on being Iran, not destabilizing. Now they had a longer game in mind, so they began building these proxies because they thought, okay, well, let's go in a different direction to some degree. So, um, but I, I guess I go to the, the same thing. It's not all or nothing. I, I tend to take everything that Washington politicians say in the aftermath of, of like the Jordan incident with the killing of the service member with a grain of salt because, uh, again, a lot of times they're playing to their base. Mm. Um, but it's um, 
Iran, uh, we've been waiting generations for the population there to rise up, and there's been a couple of occasions where they have, mm. um, to say enough's enough, right? We'd actually like to get back to where we were before, which was a free, a pretty free and open society, right, mm. where people flourished, where they had opportunities, where they, you know, and that hasn't happened. And I think it probably won't happen in our lifetime. So you just have to have pragmatic strategies to try to contain them. Yes. It's difficult to come up with pragmatic strategies in an age of drones. Mm. Uh, and Iran seems to be behind uh, most of the drones that, um, that cause problems for Western right. powers. Um, what can one do strategically, tactically to take out Iran's drone producing capabilities? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, and it is interesting, right? I mean, you raise a really important point, which is that I think they've spent years now building up this, this drone industry, mm. right? Um, the good thing about, the good thing, that's not the way to put it. Um, from an investigative standpoint, yes. if you have an attack, like one of these 160 plus attacks, where drones were involved, there's forensic evidence, right? So, um, it's relatively easy to, to pick up the pieces that remain and mm. say, we know where this drone was manufactured. Right? Um, how, do you, how do you minimize that? Part of the problem is that component parts are, I don't want to say readily available, but more readily available than like your typical ballistic missile program, right? Where yes. you've got a limited number of outlets. You know, you can't just go to Big Kim's ballistic missile warehouse. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, there's... there's there's a lot of uh, opportunity to shop and to acquire uh, drone components. Mm. And, and they have a pretty robust manufacturing capability in country. So it, is, it can be difficult. Um, the U.S. just uh, uh, charged uh, four Chinese nationals who were engaged in uh, the business of obtaining parts and pieces for drones and getting them rerouted into Iran, right? Mm. So um, that's one way you do it, is you go after the suppliers, you go after those people working in the gray arms market. And um, so that's, but that can only go so far. So mm. look, the Iranians have been busy providing drones to uh, Putin, um, and they've played a very important role, yes. just like the North Koreans are providing ballistic missiles now to Putin. And he's been firing off those North Korean missiles with increasing frequency over the past month, yes. right, using that. And that's an, it's, it's, it's an important point because the North Koreans in the past didn't really know to what degree these, their, their missile cap were, were capable, right, on the battlefield. Yeah. And so now they're getting free testing in a way via Putin, and then they're also getting tech transfer for their, their programs uh, from Putin and from the Russian military to advance their own missile and nuclear capabilities. It, it's, there's a lot going on in the world today. Yes. And it, one more question on drones. Uh, is it partly the problem that they're so cheap to make? And we hear stories, reports from Israel that, you know, sort of sometimes a, a missile that costs up to a million dollars is being used to shoot down yeah. a drone that can be assembled for next to nothing. Yeah, 10,000 pounds. Yeah. And you've just fired off a million dollar interceptor. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, the rate of return, uh, although you're, you're saving lives, so I, what do you put a, a price on that, I suppose? But, but, but eventually, you'll get But eventually, yes. Yeah. And, and it's also, I mean, you think about the ships, the naval ships out in the, uh, in the Red Sea that are defending commercial traffic, or, or themselves when they get targeted. The Houthis just fired off a, a cruise missile at a U.S. naval ship 
yesterday that that they intercepted you know basically during the last mile mm. right that's pretty damn close you know mm. these things can can move at a high rate of speed you cover a mile in, in seconds right even for a relatively unsophisticated missile so yeah it, it is a um it's it's a it's an, a cost equation yeah. it's also a supply equation right i mean the you look at Ukraine and the Patriot missile battery systems, you know, we're, you know, everybody's running low. Yeah. Um, it sounds strange to say your, your warehouses are drying up, right? And you got to worry about supply and production because there seems to be plenty of demand, mm. you know, so um, who benefits? I guess the, I guess the weapon suppliers. Yes. That, does, yeah. that doesn't sound very good, does it? Well, they often do. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Um, but, but so you mentioned uh, Russia there and China. Donald Trump says we're on the brink of World War Three. That's obviously political talk in in many ways, um, but it's it, national security does seem to be increasing as a concern in the polls, um, a, a voter concern in the polls. Just let's not talk about the American election. Let's talk about the strategic side of this. Uh, it does seem to me. Thank you, by the way. That we are. Not talking about the American election. <laughs> I'm trying. My, natural, my instinct is to bore on about politics, uh, but I will try and keep because it's actually much more interesting. The uh, that we do seem to the, the alliance between Russia, uh, Russia and China certainly seems to have been they seem to be growing closer strategically, um, and then you bring in Iran into the equation, and you have a kind of axis uh, that is becoming more active. I think it's fair to say more belligerent. Um, and we are getting into a situation where you have quite a serious uh, counterweight to American influence. And um, they seem to be, well, winning might be putting it too strongly, but they're getting the upper hand. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Winning is probably not the way to put it yet. Yet. Yeah. Um, but yes, between between China, Russia, North Korea and Iran. Mm. Right. Uh, but then again, you could argue you know, what's old is new again. If, if you had asked um, Washington politicians, eh, not really politicians, let's go with the intel community and the military, the Pentagon, um, 30 years ago, what are your top concerns? It would have been those countries, right? Yeah. Plus, yeah. Um, maybe terrorism, maybe the frailty of the infrastructure, you know, mm. and, the, and the potential to, you know, to, to cause damage to infrastructure. And, and uh, but I think... As far as a, a so as far as an axis of evil or an evil league of evil or whatever you want to call it, they, they, they've yeah. always kind of been there. The problem is that you're right. Um, it does somehow seem it seems worse now, right? Uh, and there is more interdependence. Mm. Um, Russia is certainly more dependent than it ever expected. Look, they're, they're you know, I don't even know how you would put it in terms of their relationship with China, but it's not an equal footing. Yes. There's no way. Um, and so China is kind of sitting atop the heap, watching it all, kind of keeping an, keeping an arm's length, occasionally mumbling about, well, we need world peace. We need stability. We need, you know, we need to play the role of peacemaker, which is what they want to be seen as. They want to be seen as the leading uh, light for um, maintaining order. Right. They don't really have an interest in maintaining order, but they want that position. Right. They understand the importance of it. So, yes, they've been trying to organize the global south or, you know, however you want to phrase the organization of states and countries that that they uh, they've been working to bring into the fold as a counterweight to the U.S. and the West. Mm. So there's there's been much more of an effort in that regard. But I think part of this dynamic, why it seems a little bit 
more unusual, a little more destabilized is because of the diminished sort of our image of Russia. We've seen them falter. We know that they're having problems. And so what does that mean? Does that mean they're a little bit more desperate? No, they're relying more on China. They're relying on Iran and North Korea for munitions. Um, so what that means is you get faster, you know, because it's always a two-way deal. You're getting faster tech transfer to Iran and, and North Korea for their missile and nuclear programs. Right? Mm. And that's, that's a real concern, you know, particularly because, again, that gap is, that window's closing, you know, for when we can negotiate or deal with Iran before they, you know, pop up and say, hey, we're a member of the nuclear club. Yes. Um, so, and it, once they do that, that's going to create some instability in the Middle East because the Saudis aren't going to sit there and say, okay, sure, you got nukes. Well, we're okay without them. Yes. You know, so. What do you, what's your view of the uh, Biden administration's approach to China? Because obviously it's something like uh, what's going on in the Middle East. China has economic reasons for wanting uh, you know, the flow of trade to continue uh, through the straits and so on. Well, you know um, who's, it, it's an interesting point. This is probably way too much inside baseball. China's revenues from their shipping industry have skyrocketed yeah. because the Houthis are not. And they're, they're not, it's not that they're just not targeting, they're deliberately going well out of their way to avoid causing any trouble for Chinese shipping. Yeah. So suddenly now China's shipping industry is just booming because they're picking up all the slack. Right? Yes. And meanwhile, the other shipping industries, Maersk and Hapag and all the others, they've had to just clear the area. They're rerouting, and that adds nine or 10 days you yes. know, when you change your route. Um, so yeah, I, I, this is it's kind of apropos of nothing. I warned you about that before. Well, I, I like that. I mean, it's yeah. good. I mean, yeah. so a, a sensible dark arts uh, st- security strategy would be to encourage uh, anti Houthi uh, rebels in in Yemen to <laughs> oh, uh, wow. to target Chinese ships. <laughs> I'm sorry. What? Wow, you should you should work for uh, for MI6 <laughs> or, <laughs> for the agency. Well, right? I think we, maybe we need to be we need to be as cynical as as they are. But, uh, what, I mean, on on this Biden administration approach of uh, challenge, uh, confront, and cooperate mm. seems to be the the phrase. I think um, it's uh, it's not working very well, is it? With with China, um, I, look, I, you can argue all day long about about Trump. Um, I, I'm not a fan. I'm I'm you know I'm not a fan of. Uh, the president currently either. Uh, again, it's not for politics. It's just simply for for uh, approach and, and policy issues and how they deal with certain things. But um, one of the things I thought that, that uh, look, we've got 330 plus million people in the U.S. and we're going to end up with an election that likely will have Biden and Trump again. Yeah. What the hell's up with that? I mean, that's that's a problem. But anyway, point being is that with, with Trump, uh, their China policy at least shed a light or a, a put a focus on the Chinese regime's um, just blatant uh, theft of intellectual property, economic espionage, uh, efforts to create an unlevel playing field every opportunity they get. And, and, uh, and then they, they have the audacity to be out there saying, well, you know, you, the U.S. is trying to disrupt global trade. And thinking, what are you talking about? You've spent generations stealing research and development information in order to get yourself where you want it. Now, fair go. That was your plans, and you, and you did it well, right? Yeah. I mean, that was, that was the way you were going to grow. The Japanese came out of World War II, 
uh, with an idea that how are we going to rebuild? Well, we're going to rebuild by becoming this massive manufacturing powerhouse. We're going to—that's how we're going to do it. Mm. Uh, the Chinese looked and said, "How are we going to get to the top of the food chain?" And it was like, "Well, we got to bypass all that heavy lift of the research and development and engineering and all that. Just get out of that business." for now till we get up where we want to be so mm. they spent all this time hoovering up everybody's information right? yes um, and so at least the previous administration talked about it shined the light on it uh, you know kind of pushed them it didn't necessarily change things right it was like when president obama stood next to xi and said we've come up with a you know an agreement that you know they're going to get out of the cyber shenanigans business right <laughs> and she went on and, and built an even more robust uh, Intel apparatus to yeah. engage in, in cyber, you know, crime and cyber theft. So you can't, you're not going to influence somebody like she, you're not going to change his position. So you just have to be pragmatic and understand and then, and then act and do your own business with that understanding. It's yes. like a, 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 some a folks who are in the pharmaceutical industry uh, sat down with my company one time they were getting ready to open up another facility in China. And they said, well, we just want to try to figure out how to protect our information, you know, that's going to be, you know, because we're producing. And, and the answer was, you're not going to. You yes. can't. So whatever you take there, you have to assume they're going to get a hold of. That's just the way it works. Yes. And, I mean, do you think uh, that Mike Pompeo, you said you're not a Trump guy, but Mike Pompeo seemed to have a grasp of how to exert pressure on China. I think there were, yes, there were... As Secretary were, of State. Yeah, Secretary of State. And look, he had been the director over at the CIA. Mm. Um, and, uh, and you know, I've met Mike. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a very good guy. He's a pragmatic guy, mm. right? Um, and that's what I think is missing in part from the Biden administration. It just has, it has this feeling that, you know, there's the world that we would like it to be, so let's let's act like that, right? Mm. Let's let's engage as if that's what's going to happen. You know, you, the the current administration again. I, I don't want to get into the but border security as an example. Mm. Um, you know, this idea that well, we can't. You know, it's not the 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 border that's the problem. It's poverty in other countries that's the problem. It's corruption in other countries that's the problem. Yes. It's it's you, well, yes, <laughs> those are problems, but. Good luck fixing them. Good luck fixing them. Yeah. And so maybe you do the things that, that you can do in the short term. You know, secure the border like every other nation does, mm. right? Um, and then have a fair immigration policy. And then, sure, work on these issues. Try to, try to help Venezuela get out of a tailspin, right? Yeah. Um, but that's a decades, decades, decades long process. You can do the things in the short term. And... I think sometimes it seems like the current administration in the U.S. just kind of does things based on feels and, you know, wanting to, wanting to feel good, yes. self-righteous. Yeah. And do you think that is indicative of a superpower in decline, in irreversible decline? That's interesting. Um, no, no, I don't think it is. Um, maybe I'm just being, you know, patriotic. stupidly patriotic or something but i think well look i you know i'm a dual citizen so yeah. i've seen the empire in decline yeah. we've, <laughs> I mean, been, we've been in decline for years so, that's why we're so but, keen to see it another yeah. but i think it's i look i think it's it's indicative of um of a set of policies i'll put it that way um not driven by nefarious reasons you know you get some republicans that you know 
think that the Democrats do things because it's, you know, because they're trying to destroy the country or something. That's ridiculous, right? Mm. You've got people who do things that they feel are the right. You know, our problem in the U.S. is a little bit similar to elsewhere. It just seems to be more hyper in the U.S. Nobody lives in the center, right? Nobody's, the politicians, I mean. Yeah. Um, we have created a, a political system, a, a voting system, where the people that have the most influence, the voters that have the most, tend to be the, the hard left and the hard right. Yeah. Right, because they vote in the primaries or what we call the primaries, which lead up to choose your that chooses your candidates. And then those candidates face each other in the general election. Mm. The most active voters show up for those primaries and they tend to be on the fringes. And so we're lacking politicians who actually want to get things done, who compromise, who work together because they're worried about their next election. Right. Mm. If you had term limits in the U.S., where you could only where you could only serve as a congressman or a senator for a certain period of time, you might get bigger, bolder, you know, more independent decisions because they're not focused on could I be a senator for forty two years? You bet I could, and we've had them. Right? Yes, we've got we've got we've got people that are I don't know one hundred and seventy years old sitting up on Capitol Hill. But you do have a, a state department that remains. You know, it gets the things get moved around. But certainly, if you look at the way sort of Trump changed the the ship of state, as it were, the tanker of u.s policy uh some of that had to carry on because you know these things don't just change just because the president's changed um do you think maybe the rot goes deeper in american security thinking now um no so much of it look i think there's yeah there's a lot to that question um if you look at the State Department, if you look at the CIA, if you look at the FBI, if you look at the institutions there that have been in the news mm. lately where people say, oh, it's over politicized. It's, you know, there's, you know, they, they got to they gotta tear it down and start over again because it's, I, I'm not a fan. I don't believe in that at all. I yeah. spent too much time behind the curtain. Uh, we got great people working on at the street level and, you know, kind of keeping things moving. And to your point. It doesn't matter who the administration is. They're there. They're working. Right. Mm. You've got this this group that. If if we had a, a structure like I've seen, I've seen numerous times overseas and, and during the years, that every time there's a change in government, they just clear house, bring in their own people. That's awful. Yeah, you, we, you never want that. So when people in the U.S. talk about we got to you know tear down the FBI, tear down the CIA, and start over, they don't know what they're talking about, right? Yeah. That's banana republic stuff, right? You don't do that, right? You do make sure that you avoid. The politics, you need apolitical organizations, and you better have an apolitical, to the best degree possible, uh, intel organization, you know, federal law enforcement, all those things. So occasionally, if you get people at the top who are too political, who, who you know, are too enamored of their association with the White House or whatever, have been brought in because they're, you know, old longtime friends, that's something you have to watch out for. And there's, there's checks and balances that are supposedly in place. Those depend on aggressive, creative, inquisitive uh, politicians who sit on intel committees who are supposed to ask the questions and shine the light and get the transparency. Yes. So, I mean, I know you, you work for the CIA, but you don't think the CIA has become too involved in strategy? No. 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 And I said, look, I, again, every, everyone's going to have their own opinion. I'm yeah. basing my opinion on having actually worked there, <laughs> yeah. spent a lot of years overseas uh, working in a lot of different areas for them. Um, and no. So... I'm somebody else who hasn't, you know, is going to sit there and go, well, they're too, you know, of course they are. Yeah. I'm thinking, oh, well, okay, God bless you. You know, get out of your mom's basement, you know, live a little, and then <laughs> maybe I'll listen to your opinion. But, you know, there are, there are people who have, I think, 
made good points, which is that you cannot have, you can't have directors or you can't have people in charge who are, uh, who are, I don't want to say beholden, but uh, again, are, are too political or, you know, you're always going to get these political appointees and there's going to be an element of that. Mm. You've got to have transparency to the degree that you can, but no, I, I, I will not be shifted off my position. The agency as an example, talking about these institutions, the agency has terrific people mm. working way out of the spotlight, right? For no pats on the back, doing things that other people are not going to want to do and working to promote national security and to do the things that they're asked to do by whatever administration comes in and sets those taskings and those national priorities. So there's, and it's the same with the FBI, great agents out in the streets doing work, keeping people safe. Um, so there's sort of that mindless, you know, tear it all down. It's other. Those are sound bites. Yes. Right? Whether it's from pundits or politicians, those are those are just sound bites. Well, lastly, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, perhaps you don't think we're on the brink of World War III, but do you think uh, <laughs> that it will be possible to deal with the China's uh, in- increasingly menacing rise, I would say, and, uh, and its alliance with Russia and Iran and so on without a major conflict? And do you think what's happened in Ukraine is proof that you know, there was a lot of excitement when Ukraine at first was doing quite well in the war and that, you know, Western powers seem to have been kind of you know, energized and so on. And that's now run into a, a wall of missiles, really, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, I mean, do you think that we the West can get out of this situation uh, without some major conflict or just irreversible decline? Uh, yeah, I think it, it can. Like, I'm, I tend to be, you know, despite... Um, maybe the way I sound sometimes, I tend to be an optimist. Right? Yeah. I think the U.S., the, uh, the U.K., the EU, very resilient. And I think you look at Ukraine and, and, and Russia, um, I think we'll probably see a, a negotiated settlement, um, maybe even by the end of this year. Uh, it's in, I, mean, I know that Putin probably believes that he can just outlast the West, but the EU has just, you know, renewed a, an aid or approved an aid package. Mm. Um, the U.S. will do the same, um, and so I think he will probably look around eventually, maybe again as soon as the end of this year, and, and realize he can't he can't keep this up without facing some social unrest. And the only thing that that Putin or a Xi Jinping uh, or the mullahs, the only thing they worry about is significant social unrest, mm. losing control of the population, right? That's it. Then they lose power. And the only thing they really want is power. So mm. I think that, that Putin will read the tea leaves and, and realize he was wrong in a lot of different ways. Um, he really thought he was going to see cracks in NATO and probably a splintering of, of NATO and certainly EU resolve. That hasn't happened. NATO's grown. Um, so I think that conflict is going to is going to get resolved. The Middle East, I think, we're, you know, I don't I don't think that's going to happen. They're talking about a two state solution again, as if somehow that's a new idea. Yeah. And I think, okay, well, it's been around for a while, and it's it's always been kicked to the curb. Yeah. Um, it would be terrific if they could come up with it, but I guarantee you, if if it means approving Israel's right to exist then Iran will do everything possible to scuttle that. Yeah. Uh, so that's a, that's a problem that's not disappearing. Yeah. I think the current instability, the shootings in the, in the Red Sea. Yeah. Yeah. I know. We've been into pessimism quite quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but with China, <laughs> China, look, China is the key, 
here yeah. uh, to to long term global stability. That's that's that one that could be a complete planet shaker, right? Yeah. Um, so um, I think that you know they don't want it. It's not as if they want to militarily invade Taiwan. They want a soft you know landing yeah. with Taiwan eventually. Um, I think what eventually will happen is is that. Uh, I, if anybody thinks of the U.S. under any administration was going to put boots on the ground in Taiwan, I think they're completely, you know, misguided. Yeah. So I think there will be a large effort to reshore all the all the the, the chip manufacturing and other important operations that take place that we currently rely on and have and and, and deal with Taiwan for. And with their understanding that at some point China is probably going to move on that. Mm. And I, given the history there. I don't believe we're looking at a military conflict, right? And I think, and, and time-wise, I think Xi Jinping wants to do that before he fades off into the sunset. I think that is kind of in his mind, his ultimate legacy is bringing Taiwan, you know, back into the fold in his mind. Yes. I suppose the hope might be that uh, free market economies or free-ish as they are at mm. the moment will outlast uh, the Chinese economic model, which has thrived in the last few years, but is is fraught with with it's got great a ton danger. of problems. Yeah. We haven't even touched on that. Right? Yeah. The Chinese economy is is the one thing that uh, people really should be watching and digging into a little bit, right? Because they've got layers of problems, and mm-hmm. right now, uh, she is is working very hard to suppress that information internally, mm-hmm. right? Um, he's he's really cracking down on on anything. I'm just just a, you know an op-ed or a column or a, a, a report that talks about um, the the problems within the Chinese economy. Why social unrest, yeah. right? Dissatisfaction. That's it's the death knell for uh, anybody running a, a you know a, a government like that. Right? Yes. I don't want to say despot or dictator, but I think I just did. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. Well, we will end it there, Mike Baker. Thank you so much for coming into The Spectator, and thank you for sharing your fascinating insights. And thank you for introducing me to the term planet shaker. Oh. I... <laughs> That's it for uh, that episode of the Americano podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. I'd like to thank our brilliant Spectator production team, uh, Natasha Feroz, my producer, Oscar Edmondson, who's sitting opposite me. And I would like to ask any listeners who have ideas as to who they think I should get on the podcast. Um, we're going to be doing two a week, so that we have to come up with plenty of ideas this year. And often you have much better ideas than I do. So please do get in touch if you have an idea of a guest that you think we should try and get on the show or a subject that you think we haven't covered that we should be covering, and please email that to podcast at spectator.co.uk or you can get in touch with me directly on Twitter. I think my handle is freddygray31, which is depressingly how old I was when I set up my Twitter account. Okay, please do that. Goodbye. Goodbye.